Welcome into a special Big Ten Football Media Days edition of BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue of BTN.com, and if you aren't ready for Big Ten Football yet, you probably will be after listening to Take 10's two preview episodes for the upcoming 2017 season. We are releasing a two-part special to align with Big Ten Media Days, which are taking place in Chicago Monday, July 24th and Tuesday, July 25th. And we've called on reporters from landof10.com to help us break down the teams. And they were all really great. They were able to provide some really phenomenal in-depth analysis on all the teams in the Big Ten. And I learned a ton about the current state of the Big Ten and all the programs from chatting with these writers who all cover the day-to-day beat in some shape or form for, for some of these Big Ten teams. So I also have each of them make some preseason predictions at the end of each discussion, so be sure to stay tuned for those. And we did break down the episodes into East and West Divisions. So this will be the East Division episode, and the West Division episode will be released tomorrow. So there was so much to get to, and these episodes do run longer than a normal episode of Take 10, because there was so much, uh, so much good insight from, from all the writers. But before we get started, I did want to remind you to download and subscribe to this Take 10 podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, wherever you listen, and to rate and comment if you like the show. My first guest on this episode is Rachel Lindsay, who covers Michigan for Land of 10. And we'll get right to it. The Big 10 East preview on Take 10, starting with Rachel Lindsay. For some expertise on all things Michigan Wolverines, I'm joined by Rachel Lindsay. Rachel covers Michigan for Land of 10, and you can find her work at landof10.com and follow her on Twitter at rlindsaycmg. How's it going, Rachel? Thanks for joining me. It's great. Uh, how, how are you, Alex? I'm doing fantastic. I'm ready to talk some, some Michigan football and uh, as a part of this Big Ten East preview here for, for Big Ten Media Days. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to football season, too. It's hard to believe it's going to be, what, about seven weeks before Michigan kicks off against Florida and Arlington, Texas. It's crazy, right? I can't believe it. It's like, yeah. I feel like basketball season just ended, and now we're already uh, looking ahead and, and almost, like you said, seven short weeks away from football season, so it's pretty nuts. Right, right, exactly. All right, so um, definitely excited to go in-depth and talk some Michigan football, but first I wanted to hear about a project you and the the folks over at Land of Ten have been working on that encompasses the 100th anniversary of the the Big Ten Conference we know today. And as I understand, Michigan's inclusion in the league 100 years ago, back in 1917, was was kind of the impetus for the current Big Ten moniker and sort of set the league on the path to where it is today. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, the project you guys are working on? Well, yeah, it, it, was, it was really, really cool and historical to be able to look back at, you know, not just what Michigan did, but kind of to see how the Big Ten came into for, into formation and do what we know, you know, even including Nebraska and Penn State, which are the newcomers. I think it was 1993 Penn State was officially in. Uh, 2011, 2012 is when Nebraska was officially in. But uh, my colleague Kevin Goldine and I, we looked at the 100 years, of, last 100 years of Michigan athletics, and we did a countdown. It was the top 100 moments in Michigan history, and it uh, ended today. We looked at everything from uh, Michael Phelps, who trained at Michigan uh, for the Olympics, to the softball team's national championship in 2005, even some of the more, uh, would you say, dubious moments in Michigan athletic history. Uh, like the just you know, the the departure of Dave Brandon, the former athletic director in 2014, the Rich Rodriguez era, because 
you know, you, you, you got to tell both sides of the story, kind of the good and bad of everything that happened, because that's what history is. And for me, it was, it was really, really fun to find out certain things, where I'd look up something about, uh, there was a Brazilian swimmer named Gustavo Borges, uh, who had made the Olympics. He's a pretty big decorated Olympian, he was a huge star in Brazil. It seems like, I would look it up and say, I didn't know that. And I think that was the fun part of me, to, you know, for me to do this project with my coworker, Kevin, was that, Finding out these things that I didn't know and something that our readers might say, oh, I didn't know that the more, you know, for lack of a better word, the, the trivia of it. Sure. I think that was really, really interesting. And this week, uh, we counted down our top five moments with me, separate stories on each thing. Uh, number five was the 1996 National Hockey Championship. It was really cool because I got to talk to Mike Legg, who uh, scored one of the most famous goals in college hockey history, the lacrosse-style goal behind the net against Minnesota. People just call it the Michigan right now. It's really cool. He's a firefighter in uh, British Columbia now. And some of his teammates have gone into other things as well. And I really like talking to those guys. And then the people they became afterwards, not just hockey players, but businessmen, financial advisors, firefighters, if you will. Um, number, number four was two, two, two. I believe that was, I'm looking this up right here. I apologize. I'm not prepared. Completely prepared for no this. No worries. But, uh, yeah. And I'm, Number four, thank goodness for Twitter, I have these all counted down here. Uh, doo -doo -doo. And number four was uh, the death of Beauchamp Beckler in 2006, which was uh, kind of earth-shattering when you think about what Beauchamp Beckler did, you know, not just for the program, but for the university. He was able to build the football team kind of into the most visible thing about the university. Football is the gateway to the University of Michigan. And number three was Michigan basketball in the 5-5. Again, the good and the bad that came with it. You know, you had this group of freshmen that changed the culture of college basketball, but also contributed in a way to Michigan's downfall for years and years and years. Uh, number two was the first win over Ohio State and Beauchamp Beckler's first season. Number one today, um, I think it's the most obvious one, but again, there were so many really neat details about it, too. The 1997 AP National Championship that Michigan won uh, with the Rose Bowl victory over Washington State. And that was really cool because like, I talked to John Jansen, who was one of the captains and is now a broadcaster from Michigan. He told me some great stories. I mean, there were things I couldn't put into this, you know, couldn't put in because there was so much detail and right. whatnot. But it was just a really, really fun historical aspect. And I think that's one thing that's great about sports is you don't just see you know, the games on the field. You find out about what happens off the field. You find out about the personalities as well. And I like to think we really did that with this land of 10, 100 Michigan moments. And with, you know, the other elements, with Nebraska's countdown, with Iowa's countdown, looking at Penn State's greatest players, there's a great picture of, Michigan's assistant Mike Zordish, throwback Thursday, if you will, that uh, Corey, one of our Penn State writers, said of. And it was it was a really really fun project to work on. It was great to occupy that time this summer and learn a lot about Michigan as well. Yeah, I was going to say uh, for fans that might not be Michigan fans out there, like you said, there's other writers from other Big Ten schools that have uh, done some great work on this uh, hundred year project as well. So definitely check those out at landattend.com. Some really great stuff for Big Ten fans out there, especially. If you're a history buff and want to, you know, dig back into the archives of, of a really historic conference, and um, for a program like Michigan, there's certainly no shortage of history, and they've really been one of the conference giants from the beginning. So uh, definitely <laughs> check that out, yeah, for for everyone out there. Um, so let's get into Michigan football discussion a little bit and the uh, the current squad. And you can't really talk Michigan football without kicking it off and start talking about uh, Jim Harbaugh right at the top. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I'd argue Harbaugh is the biggest head coaching name in college football right now, and I think that's just because he's more visible than some of the other 
real titans of the sport. Like he's he puts himself out there more than Nick Saban than or, or Dabo Swinney, and he's built this personal brand that he has up to uh, just incredible proportions and done it in a way that aligns with the brand of Michigan football. You know, having played there and you know, being considered a Michigan man, all that. So uh, he's pretty much at the forefront of every college football discussion and having covered Michigan like you do I just want your your personal impression after of uh of Harbaugh after covering for a little for a little while now uh what's he like to to just follow you know on a day-to-day basis he's definitely like you said you know probably the biggest and most visible personality in college football and yeah I kind of joke I'm like Jim operates under the auspices of Jim and that's about it but uh, you know, you can find, kind of figure out some of his, his mannerisms and whatnot. Dealing with him as, as a media member, I, I learned real quick, you know, he kind of looks at dealing with the media as, as a game a little bit, not like, you know, a joke or anything, but, you know, they're outside, you know, when he doesn't want to answer certain questions, he'll say certain things, or, you know, he, he recognizes that people put some thought into their questions, he'll respond in, in kind as well. But, you know, Jim has done a really good job, you know, of branding himself and also, Aligning that with the University of Michigan, because face it, when Jim came in in December of 2014, it was, what, literally two days after he, quote-unquote, parted ways with the 49ers, uh, you know, he came in and kind of gave Michigan football the kick in the pants that it needed. Michigan had had some, you know, mediocre and subpar seasons up to that point under Rich Rodriguez and, and Brady Hoke. I, you know, I remember the, the five and seven seasons visibly and all, visibly and all that drama that came with it, but... Um, you know, Jim Hackett, who was the interim AD at the time, he had one charge, and that was get Jim Harbaugh. And he did it, and people say, well, maybe they should have hired Jim Harbaugh in 2008, or maybe they should have hired him in 2011. You know, the timing this time around was, was, was perfect. It was what Michigan needed. It re-energized the program. It re-energized the school. It re-energized the fan base. You know, finally, the fans are like someone who gets it, you know, quote-unquote, the Michigan man, if you will. And Jim, you know, Jim Hackett, times again. We're not looking for the technical Michigan man, but it was in the cards all the time. That was the one thing they had to do was get Jim Harbaugh. Again, he has re-energized the program. He has re-energized the players. You know, the, the team is winning again. I mean, let's say it's uh, 20 and six in a New Year's six bowl appearance, the win versus SEC program Florida, and the Citrus Bowl in January 2016. You know, right now with what Michigan's gone through, that's enough to get the fan base excited. And again, you know. Jim, you know, off the field, you know, he mingles with Michael Jordan and Derek Jeter. You know, we have Jim Harbaugh sightings here in Ann Arbor as well. You know, he started a YouTube channel, which has been kind of fun to watch to get that little view of his, you know, kind of his, his off the field life. He just there was a video of him um, riding a, you know, riding a, a, a you know, going tubing up on Lake Huron. Yeah, we all saw that. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was saying you know, he put up another video the other day of the youth impact program where he spoke to some of the uh, inner city kids who come to the University of Michigan and, and Michigan and you know talked to them a little bit. It was very candid with them as well. It's kind of like it's very crafted, if you will, you know. But it's kind of like all right, it's kind of cool to get views of you know people's lives and what they do away from you know inside the inside the football field and inside Michigan Stadium. Yeah, you you said that word crafted, and that's kind of leads into my next question. Is there any part of his his persona that's played up at all for the cameras or for the media? Because when I didn't know as much about him before I started working here, I kind of thought like the urban legends that surround him, you know, like the goofier things like the khakis and, and the, the milk drinking and the sleepovers at recruits' houses were sort of played up a little bit. But like listening to him and, and following him more closely since working for BTN in the last year or so, uh, I've, I've started to doubt that original premise that there's any part of Har- Harbaugh that you can classify 
as some sort of character that that that, that he's you know created. I, it seems like more and more, the more I listen to him, that the guy we see making all the headlines for the sometimes wacky stuff that he does, like that's just who he is as a person. Is that a fair or accurate assessment? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. You know, I, I, I was about to say, you know, Jim operates under his own auspices, and that's that's a thing. He doesn't necessarily again fit the mold of a of a Saban or a Dabo Swinney or you know Jimbo Fisher, who's just you know out there. Jim, he likes routine. I mean, every time we see him on the sidelines, he's in the long sleeve Michigan pullover, tucked into the khakis with the black cleats. He's very involved in the schedule. You know, football is what drives him. And even when he was in the NFL 20 years ago, you know. He thrived in that environment and continues to thrive in a different role. And he used football and kind of reinvented himself, if you will, into a coach, into a successful coach, you know, but kept his personality traits and, and, and whatnot. I think the structure of football is really what, what drives him as well. But he's got, like I said, you know, he operates under his own offices, and that's okay. You know, that's, that's, that's why not. You know, for us, it's good to see someone with a little personality as opposed to watching coaches in other conferences where, you know, I think of – I think of Jim McElwain at Florida, the SEC media days earlier this week, and he was asked by my my um, my Cox Media Group colleague Kyle Tucker about the photo that circulated of a guy <laughs> on a shark. Yeah, the, in, the like infamous Jim photo. Right. <laughs> and you know, Jim Jim McElwain said something like, "You know, this 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 photo attacked my family and attacked the university." And even though it probably wasn't him on the photo. I watched and I thought, Jim Harbaugh would have owned this. He would have said, yeah, I took that shark down, blah, blah, blah. I think he would have had a little fun with it. But at the same time, I think Jim also knows the boundaries as well. He'll know what questions not to answer. He'll know how to wiggle out of the unusual questions. I think about a, a question at the Orange Bowl he was asked that was not, somewhat inappropriate. And Jim handled it, Jim takes the bait. He handled it really well. He's a very, very smart guy as well. So you have to think about that also. He's kind of one step ahead of people. Sure. Um... So what's your favorite, uh, we can call it different or, or outside the realm of what traditional college coaches do, what's your favorite thing that he's done since he's been at Michigan? He's had the, the satellite camps that caused the controversy. Uh, I, liked when he, I liked when he brought the, the baseball glove to the bleachers at Wrigley Field. He had the trip to Rome, mm-hmm. so there's plenty mm-hmm. to choose from. What's your favorite thing that he's, that he's done that's maybe you know, untraditional? I think it was probably uh, one of the, uh, it, was, it was kind of unusual, something that people didn't really uh, after one of the camps here in Ann Arbor last month, yeah, they host the Ann Arbor Aerial Assault, which is for quarterbacks. Uh, they host the One Day Elite Camp, which is kind of a big, you know, kind of a, if you will, recruiting thing. You know, I hope I don't get in trouble with the NCAA by saying it's kind of a, you know, scouting showcase for Aiden Hutchinson and Emil Effior, who two Michigan commits, came into that. And, uh, they also they also have the the big man camp, which is Gary Torres-Lyman. And afterwards, I you know, I'm sitting in the I'm sitting in Blickfield House with my colleague Kevin Goeen, and we're working on our story. We've got our heads down. Out of the corner of my eye, I see someone walking toward us, and I said, "Oh no, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to get kicked out." And it's just Jim Harbaugh walking by himself, walking out of the facilities. You know, kind of saw Kevin and I with our heads down, trying to kick out stories for our hourly deadline. And he was like, hey, guys, have a good night. He was just like, it was just regular gym. And I'm like, wow, you know. I, 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 I kind of laughed and said, I don't think, you know, I don't think another football coach would even acknowledge us. But it, to me, it's like, we don't see a lot of it, but it kind of showed me he was, a, you know, he wasn't dressed like E.T. Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines. He was just dressed like a, like a dad, like a button down in khakis, of course. And he's like, hey, guys, have a good night. And I was like, all right, cool, you know. I like seeing the human side sure. of 
the people we cover as well. Which is something with in the age of social media and the age of age of you know the barriers that are put up between the media and between the athletes and the coaches. We don't see that much of anymore. And I, it's something I I really like doing is getting to the personalities of people, even if sometimes we're only limited to limited glimpses of them. Sure, absolutely. It's always nice to see the uh, like you said the human side of. Of coaches, yeah. especially when they can acknowledge that, you know, you got a job to do just like they do, and, you know, it's make that personal connection is always nice. Um, right. Yeah, but I'm going to uh, shift now into to more of the meat and potatoes of the football side of things. Right. Uh, in In Jim Harbaugh's third season at Michigan, um, he obviously lost a ton of players from last year's, last year's team. Mm-hmm. They lost the Orange Bowl. Uh, he had 11 guys drafted. And you mentioned earlier he's 20-6 and six in his first uh, couple of years. So heading into this season, what are fan expectations um, for the 2017 season? And, and do you think the fan expectations align with reality, with, with what they should expect? Yeah, they're, they're all across the board. You know, I saw earlier this summer that USA Today had ranked Michigan number four in a summer poll way, way too high, uh, given the team has – a lot of youth and a lot of inexperience are opening up against Florida out of gate, you know, in a neutral site in an NFL stadium. Uh, you know, there's, you know, and there's also the question of where are they going to fit in to the Big Ten this year? You know, as we, as we know, the Big Ten, the, the parity is out of line. P-A-R-I-T-Y is out of line. I could get those two, you know, two distinguished. You know, last year, I think we had the top four or five teams, the middle five to six teams, and clearly the bottom four teams. And, Michigan's going to have to forge its identity out of the gate. Where is it going to be? Is it going to be one of those top four teams again? Is it going to be one of those middle, you know, six teams as well? They will definitely not fall in the bottom four. I don't see that at all. But, you know, Michigan's also, it's going to be, have to be for the coaches, for the players as well. What can Jim Harbaugh and his staff do to A, develop that young talent, B, develop that young talent quickly as well? And that's one thing that's been a hallmark of Jim Harbaugh's first two seasons at Michigan is, his ability to develop players, not just to look at the long-term goal of the program, but to look at them as pros. And uh, Michigan loses about 15 or 16 starters from last year, including, you know, entire wide receiving core. They're All-American tight end. They're, they're secondary with, you know, All-American Jordan Lewis. So there's going to be some big holes to fill. And Michigan State has to understand, you know, it's the expectation of the younger guys. A lot of people have, you know, penciled in Donovan Peoples-Jones as starting wide receiver. And, you know, they've penciled in, you know, Galen Kelly Powell, teammates at Detroit's cast tech, is, you know, he's going to start at the safety, but that's why the coaching staff is there, to evaluate that talent, to develop it, to say this is where we can plug the holes intelligently. So as far as the fan expectations go, the expectations will always be high at Michigan as well. But, you know, if, I think the fan base also has to be understanding of a lot of youth on this team going to take them a little bit to come around. But I definitely think we will see a competitive team because that's how Jim Harbaugh's teams are designed. Sure, and, and I can see why people scoffed at the uh, the ranking you mentioned, the, the preseason ranking of number four by USA Today. I mean, they finished number 10 last year with a senior-laden team after going 10-3, mm-hmm. and three, and then, like we said, they, they lost a ton from that team. But uh, say they do reach the number four spot or even higher this season, what will have gone right for Michigan to uh, to reach that elite level, say everything goes right, what what would that be uh, on both sides of the ball? Everything will have to go right, absolutely. Uh, again, you're going to have to see uh, freshmen who can freshmen and so, you know, freshmen who are new to the college league, sophomores who have gotten limited reps, really 
rise into their roles and you know fulfill and exceed the expectations for those roles. Um, look at Rashawn Gary, for example, you know, a guy who really made an impact as a freshman last year. He's going to be counted on as a leader on that defensive line that lost three of its starters to graduation to the NFL. And he's going to have to, A, embrace that role, B, fulfill that role, C, exceed the expectations for that role. And, uh, you know, it's going to be the same thing the front, you know, freshmen are going to have to come in and, you know, make plays right away, you know. And for some of those guys, it might be a baptism by fire. It might be, they might have to learn by the mistakes against teams like Florida, Cincinnati, and Air Force, which are no slouch teams. They, you know, the, non the non-conference is going to be a big test for them as well. A, again, against an SEC opponent like Florida. B, against you know, Cincinnati, not a bad team. And Air Force, which comes in with that really, really blinding, confusing triple option attack. Don Brown, Michigan's defensive coordinator, said last spring, we've been studying Air Force film for ever just to know how to defend the triple option, which is the hallmark of the service academy. So uh, that's it. They're going to have to learn quickly. They're going to have to exceed expectations. And the younger players and the newcomers are going to have to understand, you know, gosh, you know, we have to play really, really awesome football. Yeah, and you mentioned Rashawn Gary, who with Jabril Peppers now now gone, it seems like he's kind of the next big thing at Michigan. He was listed uh, mm -hmm. um, by Bruce Feldman as uh, one of the, the freaks of college football, number five on a list of 40 yeah. players. So also there was a quote from uh, your defensive coordinator, mentioned him earlier, Don Brown. He said, uh, Rashawn mm -hmm. Gary is the, the best I've ever seen combining speed, strength, change of direction, and the mental curve. He's unbelievable. The sky is the limit. So that, no, no pressure on, mm -hmm. on Rashawn coming into the season. No. Uh, it seems like he's going to be you know, the next uh, guy in the spotlight, just similar to, to what Peppers was last year. So I, I wanted uh, – to get your impressions of, of Rashawn Gary, is he the next Jabril Peppers type player who just kind of commands your attention with, with the variety of plays he's capable of making? Yeah, you know, I, I would say Rashawn Gary. He is very, you know, when he was playing last season, he was like I said, he was inserted because it's part of. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, so bear with me. Uh, it's part of Greg Madison's defensive line coach. It's part of his philosophy of building a defensive line. He wants depth. He wants guys two, three deep that they can go in and go out and say. It's a cycle, keeping psychologically and physically fresh. And Rashawn Gary was kind of the, the number two guy who plugged in. He stepped in for maybe it was Chris Wormley or, or you know, um, you know Brian Monet when he went down with a knee injury early in the season. And yes, yeah, so there's going to be a lot of focus on Rashawn Gary. If you remember, a year and a half ago, he was the nation's number one recruit. He had huge expectations on him. And he came in. He's got an unusual maturity. He's got an athleticism beyond his years that, with the right training, is only going to get better and stronger. And again, you know, with the losses on Michigan's defensive line, you know, Chris Wormley, Matt Groden, uh, Ryan Glass, you know, guys in the NFL now, Rashawn Gary will be regarded as a leader both on the field of how he plays and off the field as the example that he has set for the rest of his defensive line, for the rest of his teammates, whether it's interacting with the media, how he carries himself on campus, you know, decision-making, whatnot, little things. And he's, he's a smart guy, and he, he understands it. Again, he's got a maturity you know, that's just really, really going to help him out. I think, you know, again, if he does the right thing, if he stays injury-free, if he makes a big impression on the field, yeah, he has the ability to kind of be the same focal point that Jabril Peppers was, you know, where you think Michigan football 2017 or 2018, you think Rashawn Gary. Sure, and like you said, a lot of eyes will be on him and, and uh, a ton of other underclassmen who will be expected to perform. But uh, one of the most important players on the field for Michigan next year will not be an underclassman. Uh, he'll, be, he'll be a senior, and that's the quarterback, Wilton Spate. He had a 
solid Red year. Red Jr. Red Jr. Red Jr. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. That's totally yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, thanks for the correction there. Uh, that's that's why I'm leaning on you to, you know, your, your, your expertise. <laughs> no, no, no problem. <laughs> so yeah, yeah but he, no problem. I, I'd have to, I, yeah, I'd always have to correct myself and be like, Junior, no, he's a redshirt sophomore this year. Yeah, and I, I, will, I would do it. I'd catch myself doing it too. So it always becomes second nature to me. <laughs> I'll learn. Um, so yeah, he had a solid year last year. Got hurt toward the end of the season and still managed to land on uh, the third team. All Big Ten uh, selection by the by the coaches and media. So, number one, is he the unquestioned starter? Because I know Jim Harbaugh always likes to encourage competition. And uh, what's his role going to look like after losing guys like Jake Butt and uh, Amara Darbo to the NFL and, and some additional weapons in the backfield? Right. Yeah. You know, State is the incumbent. You know, he's got that full year of experience. He thrived under former passing game coordinator. Uh, dead fish, but you're right. You know, he loses Amara Darbo, he loses Jamie Chesson, he loses Jake. But um, you know, he's got the advantage of having you know three years in the system with you know what two. He's, he's on a second passing game coordinator, and with uh, Pep Hamilton coming in, he was the Cleveland Browns last year. He's the passing game coordinator slash assistant coach. The key for State now is going to be developing a solid working relationship with Pep Hamilton. Uh, Pat Hamilton and Jet Fish were two very, very different personalities. And whereas Jet Fish was, you know, he was he was smart, he was sharp, but he was a little more laid back. He was kind of I always want, kind of like to liken him to like a guy's guy, like a guy you'd want to go out and like, you know, pardon my better term, like you know, you want to go have a beer with Jet Fish. He's just a real laid back kind of, you know, fun guy, you know, crazy guy, loves Bon Jovi, whatnot. Uh, Pat Hamilton, who again came in from the Cleveland Browns, he worked with Andrew Locke in Indianapolis. He's, a, he's more of an all-business guy. He's a little more buttoned up. He's more regimented. And there's two very big transitions for personality. I think the important thing for Wilton is going to be uh, really hammering out that relationship with Pep and finding out, you know, kind of what makes each other tick and how that can work on the field. And another factor that came in, Brandon Peters, who uh, will be a redshirt freshman this fall, had a fantastic spring game. He's over uh, 160 yards and a touchdown, 9 for 17 passing with an interception. And then people are saying, oh, there might be a challenge here. And when, you know, Jim, even though like, people like to think, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's got a starter in mind, Jim likes to make it a competition. You know, Brandon Peters may be out there pushing, you know, pushing Wilton for all we know. We have freshman Dylan McCaffrey coming in, the son of former Denver Broncos great, Ed McCaffrey, the brother of Heisman Trophy finalist Christian McCaffrey. And I think they'll probably register him, Doug, the primary should build McCaffrey, just get him into the system, put a little weight on him, just get him adjusted to a college life and be college football. But uh, if there's a competition, Joe Harbaugh has drawn it out. He'll keep Wilton State motivated for the fall. All right, definitely. And one of the last big questions I have for you, and it's fitting because this is the last big game at the, the end of the regular season, it's can uh, Michigan beat Ohio State this year? Because, uh, you know, it's it's – it's it's tough right now for Michigan fans. The Buckeyes have won twelve of the last thirteen, and I'm I'm really curious before you give me a uh, prediction on whether whether or not they'll, they'll win this year. I'm curious, can you give me a sense of how much this bothers and grinds on Michigan fans and their psyche that it's been so one sided oh, recently? It, <laughs> yeah, it totally grinds on them. Yeah. I, in fact, I was looking at I was looking through the old Twitters uh, early this morning, and I see you know someone brought up. The you know the Michigan Ohio State rivalry. People are saying we we would have won that game had it not been for the rest. And when I did a Facebook live after the Ohio State game, and then the week after Ohio State game, 
people were still saying, what do you think? What do you think? And I, you know, and I, I was like, guys, you need to get over it. You're making, you know, you're, you're, you're still making an ear six bowl, but that's not the way you see it. You know, when you're a fan, you, you think with your heart and you, you can't critically analyze it. But, oh, yeah, it, I mean, it, I, I've been told both teams can go 0-11 going into that game. But, you know, one team beats the other at Ohio State Michigan, that makes their season. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the value and the importance and the weight that's put on the Michigan-Ohio State game from both fan bases is, is unreal. I used to work in Toledo, Ohio before I joined Land of Penn, which is right straddles uh, Buckeye country and Wolverine country. Yep. And, I mean, the town would be divided. It would, People wouldn't talk to each other for a week <laughs> going into that game. And, you know, just how hostile and how, you know, but also how much fun sports is. It's like, you know, you know it's, it's a game, but no, I mean, it'll be, it, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely on the mind, you know. It, it, you know, the players want that win against Ohio State. The, the coaches want that win. Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor wants that win to be like, hey, you know, we got it back, yay. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's it's, it's huge. It's, it's it's always on yeah. the mind. Yeah, and um, you know, just working here in, in the last year or so, and like I knew the rivalry was big, but the magnitude of it, you know, it just it's kind of dawned on me how unmatched it is in in not just college sports, but across all sports. And the reason I ask that is because you know, like some rivalries, when it gets one-sided for a while, the fans on the losing end mm-hmm. kind of get used to it or resign to it. Like, I'm a, I'm a Chicago Bears right. fan. And at this point, I can barely, like, muster up any hate at all for the Green Bay Packers anymore just because they've dominated <laughs> pretty much my entire life, like, for so long. And obviously it's different in college sports, and, and it's different because Michigan has still been very good recently despite losing to Ohio State in, in most of these years. But uh, it is interesting to know that, with Michigan fans, you don't see them, you know, wearing down. It just makes them angrier and hungrier for that, for that win at the end yeah, of the season each yeah. year. It's the exact opposite of resignation. Resignation is a great way to put it for for some for some band bases. I mean, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and as much as I would love for them to beat the Patriots in the playoffs, I'm like, here we go again. You know, kind of like that. I yeah. mean, I, but I understand what you mean. But um, as far as my prediction for can Michigan beat Ohio State? Theoretically, yes, they can. If you look at the two teams this year coming in, they're a little bit of near images of each other. They've, they've lost a lot of players to whether to graduation to the NFL. They've got you know, two great quarterbacks coming back in J.T. Barrett and Will State. Uh, Ohio State's got Mike Weber, who is an incredible running back. Michigan's got you know three running backs they can pick up, including Chris Evans, who a lot of people believe is going to, you know, kind of take the role of the number one starter unless that's what, unless just Michigan running back coach Jay Harbaugh decides, well, I'm going to go with three guys in a rotation, which um, uh, that worked out well last year under Tyler Wheatley. But I definitely think there is, you know, Michigan definitely has a chance to be Ohio State to make that statement, but the question now is when and how are they going to shake the monkey off their backs? It's something every year, again, we go into this, like, is this going to be the year? Is this going to be the year? So, that's amazing. So, yeah, I say definitely, definitely possible. You know, will they do it? I, you know, I have a 50-50 shot here. So, I'll say, yeah. Yeah, I think they can beat Ohio State. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll double down and put it on the record. So. <laughs> and it can't hurt that they're in Ann Arbor this year either. So, that you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love the uh, fans on their side. 100,000 strong. Um all right, so we're going to close with a few more predictions, and I'm going to try and have all of the uh, colleagues that, of yours that I'm having on the show have predictions as well. So we'll have you on the record, like you said, and we'll be able to look back and, and give credit where credit is due. So the first okay. pre- first prediction uh, that I want you to make is 
since we've talked a lot of Michigan, and this is a technically a preview of the entire Big Ten East, we're going to mm-hmm. ask you for a sleeper in the Big Ten East this, uh, this upcoming season. So, I mean, obviously you got Penn State and Ohio State, probably going to be the biggest contenders at the top of Michigan for a Big Ten East title. Mm-hmm. But, but give me a sleeper team that maybe could sneak up on, uh, on some of those uh, Titans at the top and, and put a scare into them this season. Maryland. I say Maryland, uh, former Michigan defensive coordinator, D.D. York, entered his second year at, at Maryland. You know, he, again, he lost quite quite a bit there, but uh, he's kind of reinvigorated a certain spirit in that program. He's played a set of expectations, and they were competitive last year. It's a very strong building block within Maryland's program. Granted, it's not... You know, it's, it's Maryland newcomer to the Big Ten. There isn't the football tradition that there is in Maryland. I grew up in Maryland. I knew it as a basketball school growing up. I knew it as a lacrosse school growing up. But I definitely think DJ Durkin has the tools to make Maryland into a team that could surprise people this season. Yeah, and you look, their recruiting class last year was uh, near the top of the Big Ten, and it was it was surprising to me to yeah. see that. And they got some real talent coming in, so uh, definitely have to keep an eye on them this year and, mm-hmm. and beyond. But um, let me get your prediction for the winner of the Big Ten East this year. Like I mentioned, Ohio State, uh, you got the defending champs, Penn State, and even Michigan State's mm-hmm. looking to rebound from a, a tough 2016 right. after winning the conference two years ago. So how do you think it shakes out? I'm going, I'm, I'm going with everybody's favorite, Penn State, because they return so much, and I think this is going to be a very, very important year for James Franklin. I think this is going to be the year, and last year, you know, Penn State did a great job of backing up everything that James Franklin's put on the table as far as salesmanship goes, but, uh, yeah, if you do it once, and if you can come back strong again, and I think they're going to be uh, hungry after getting demolished 49-10 to 10 by Michigan. I think that Penn State-Michigan game is be pivotal October 21st as well, so uh, Penn State's my favorite from Big Ten East. All right, yeah, and that's kind of another monkey on the back of Jim Harbaugh the next one. He's got he's to shed because... He hasn't uh, reached a Big Ten title game yet. I know it's been only a couple years, but uh, that's the expectation in Ann Arbor, I'm sure. Who's Penn State going to face in the Big Ten title game in Indianapolis? Who's going to win the Big Ten West? Ooh, ooh, that's a good question. You know, I, I'm, my first two on Walls are with Wisconsin and Nebraska, but I'm also eager to see what T.J. Flack is able to do at Minnesota. If he can get Minnesota over the hump, if he can fill the stadium, if he can, quote-unquote, do the row of the boat thing, and get those guys re-energized up in, you know, up in Dickens Town as well. I, I think, you know, I, I think there's, it's like Maryland. Minnesota's got a lot of, like, they've got beautiful facilities. They've got a young coach who's energetic and, you know, who wants to win. I think they've been very, very solid recruiting as well. But that's the thing, it, you know, will it take PJ Flight a couple games or a couple seasons to put the pieces together at Minnesota? And I know you were, you know, very impressed with Penn State, very high on them. Are you predicting them to win the Big Ten, or do you think whoever comes out of the West will uh, will have a shot? Um, I, th- I think whoever comes out of the East is going to have a shot. And right now, that's you know my, my pick is Penn State. All right. Penn State, and you're sticking with it? Last question. Uh, I'll stick with it. It's a lesson bomb somehow in this season. So. <laughs> well, even if they start out 2-2 two and two and start out kind of ugly, we know what they, they're capable of like last year. So Exactly. Exactly. All right. Final prediction. Um, give me okay. your big, big Ten player with the best chance to – be in New York City and win the Heisman Trophy Ooh. at the end of the season. Ooh, that's that's a that's a that's a really really good question. Uh, I've got two that come to mind. Uh, 
Trace McSorley, the quarterback of Penn State, and Mike Weber, the running back at Ohio State. All right. Interesting you went with yeah. Mike Weber over uh, Saquon Barkley, who I think everyone's really high I mean, on. I didn't, think, I didn't even think about Saquon, so thank you, know, you for reminding me. All right, let's throw, let's throw Saquon in there as well. So I think, you know, that's another one I'm like. The problem, though, with, with Saquon Barkley, is I've seen his numbers, I've seen but against Michigan, he just hasn't been able to do anything. And that's the only time I've actually seen Saquon Barkley. I joke that, um, yeah, I, I would watch college football, but I work on Saturday, so I don't get to see a lot of these guys as well. Right. Oh, I like that. Saquon Barkley, throw him in there for me, well, too. And that way no one gets mad at you for picking Mike Weber, you know. See, I just exactly. kind of uh, gave you some exactly. cover. So. All right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Rachel, all right. That's, that's all I got for you. Um, thanks okay. so much for... Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Definitely check out Rachel's work and, and the rest of her colleagues' work over at Land of Ten. And, uh, hey, enjoy covering what should be a very intriguing season in 2017 definitely, in Ann Arbor. Definitely. It'll be fun. Lots of good stuff right there from Rachel. And now that we've talked a ton of Michigan, it's time to discuss their bitter rival, the Ohio State Buckeyes. And for some analysis on all things Ohio State, we had Ryan Ginn who covers the Buckeyes for Land of Ten, join us for this segment. So let's get right into it. And for some more insight on the Big Ten East, especially on all things Ohio State, I'm joined by Ryan Ginn from Land of Ten. Check out his coverage of the Buckeyes at landoften.com and follow him on Twitter at rmginn. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for thanks for joining me today. And um, you know you're you're covering one of the titans of the Big Ten, so no pressure on the podcast. But uh, we're we're expecting a lot out of you. All right. Well, I'll see what I can deliver. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's actually start with start with the bad here. Um, if we're talking about Ohio State, they obviously had a great, pretty good season last year up until the last game against Clemson where they took a 31 to nothing beating and has become pretty much uh, the butt of jokes from Michigan fans and, and all other Ohio State rivals all, all summer. So Urban Meyer doesn't like to be embarrassed. Um, Ohio State fans don't like to be embarrassed. That program doesn't like to be embarrassed. Has the approach changed at all heading into, heading into this season, knowing that uh, there might be a chip on their shoulder? Yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest change is that they have a new offensive coordinator in Kevin Wilson. And it's just sort of uh, interesting because I was, you know, wrote my stories after the Fiesta Bowl uh, that night, which was, um, I think, actually New Year's Eve. And then I was sitting in the Phoenix airport waiting for my flight back to Columbus. And I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, man, like, just what Urban said after that press conference, you just know somebody's you know, going to be gone. And so I kind of wrote a story about that based on what Urban said and the fact that historically, anytime an Urban Meyer team has been deficient in an area, a uh, assistant has, you know, been replaced with someone else. And sure enough, you know, Tim Beck took the job at Texas and then Ed Warner is now Minnesota's offensive line coach, whereas last year he was the United States offensive coordinator. They brought in Kevin Wilson. So, um, yeah, I, I think the, the staff was the, the biggest obvious thing right away. Uh, I guess they decided over the last two years that the current arrangement was not working uh, in the, the post-Tom Herman era. So they changed things up there. Uh, other than that, you know, Ohio State's pretty consistent with its, uh, its messaging and its, its mentality. So I don't think they've, they've done too much there. 
you know, it'd be foolish for them to paint themselves as underdogs or anything like that. You know, they're still, you know, pretty much the co-favorite for the national championship with Alabama, and that will probably, you know, be that way for the foreseeable future, the way, you know, both of those programs are recruiting. But I, I think the biggest thing is, is they decided that the offense could not continue as uh, presently constructed. Yeah, and there was a lot of frustration, like you mentioned, with the previous offensive coordinator, and it was kind of out in the open. Many fans you saw on social media would, were, would question the offensive play calling. And then uh, Ezekiel Elliott, when he was there, he, he also questioned the, the play calling. Am I remembering that right? Yes, uh, that was the uh, 2015 season, so that was Ed Warner's first season as the offensive coordinator. And they uh, they took a loss to Michigan State, and he, he did not get the ball enough. Although, you know, to be to be fair... He was not running very efficiently when he did get to the same time. You know, there's some people who say that, you know, the more he, you know, would have gotten carries, the, you know, better he would have done. You know, kind of guys need to get, you know, warmed up and get into the swing of things. But, yeah, it, it's been a uh, an interesting uh, source of contention, I guess, because there would be times where Ohio State would use a tempo-based offense, and but a lot of times they wouldn't. And so, and they obviously had the quarterback battle in 2015, so that was a, a whole other deal. But, um, yeah, it, it really, the last few years were sort of defined by the fact that there was no, like, clear-cut offensive approach. It was a lot of, you know, different things going on at different times, and, you know, there was a lot of inefficiency, too, with how much J.C. Barrett ran the ball, and it was, uh, you know, quite frankly, a mess, which is kind of crazy because they, I believe, you know, they still had around a top 10 scoring offense those years with just, you know, the athletes they have on that team and the, the points they could put up, but it, it really wasn't operating very efficiently at all. Yeah. When you have all those weapons uh, with such highly regarded recruits and all that talent, you're probably going to have a top 10 offense, but if you don't have the correct scheme or the correct approach, it can look ugly like we saw. And, and now Kevin Wilson is here. They hope, uh, he can be the guy to to put it all together. He's here from Indiana, and he's just not he's not some exile exiled or uh, renegade coach who's who's getting a second shot. This is a offensive mind that put Indiana back in bowl contention on a semi regular basis, and uh, it was almost entirely because of their offense, because of what Kevin Wilson was able to do. So, what do you think the offense is going to look like now under an accomplished guy like Wilson? Um, I, I honestly think. The, the passing game should be better, and, and that's obviously uh, would be a welcome sight for Ohio State fans. You know, he's obviously one of the more innovative uh, offensive minds in college football and has been since his days at Oklahoma as the offensive coordinator and, and even at Indiana. Um, I think it's the first time in a couple of decades that they, they made back-to-back bowls, and they just did that under Kevin Wilson. So, um, you know, he's got a pretty good approach there. I would say that I would expect JT Barrett, you know, completed, I think, just freshly under 65% of his passes as a true freshman in 2014. It dropped to 63% in 2015 and 61% in 2016. And I would expect the biggest sign of of a healthy Kevin Wilson offense is, you know, efficiency in the passing game. I would expect JT Barrett's completion percentage to get back up to 65% or higher. And I think, you know, whether or not that happens will kind of determine where the season goes because the offense really works its best when the passing game is enough of a threat to uh, 
you know, open up the run game. You know, or they do a lot of spread stuff, but it's still kind of a power offense overall. And they, they kind of need the passing game success to, to open up the running game. So I would say I, I would look for that. And I, I guess, you know, we'll see also in the fall whether he's uh, he, Kevin Wilson and, and I guess also wide receivers coach Zach Smith and uh, company have fixed the uh, the problem with the deep ball and Ohio State's inability to, uh, you know, hit some big plays downfield because that was obviously a hallmark of the 2014 team and it, it wasn't really present at all each of the last two years. Sure. And on the other side of the ball, at coordinator, you have a guy who probably even had more success than Wilson did at the college level as a head coach and Greg Schiano. And this this has got to be the highest profile group of coaches in the country, right? When you head coach on down to his coordinators, I think it's probably the most <coughs> prominent name-wise group that uh, exists anywhere in college football. Yeah, it's it's pretty insane when you think about it that you know, Kevin Wilson is a guy who was a head coach at Indiana last year and coached against Urban Meyer, and uh, you know for a while was a a candidate to maybe move to a different job just because of his offensive prowess. Um, and then Greg Schiano is a guy who obviously led Rutgers to tremendous heights and then coached in the NFL. And both of those guys, you know, found themselves out of coaching with you know sort of. I guess Greg Schiano had, you know, he just didn't win at Tampa Bay, but, you know, Kevin Wilson, it was off the field stuff that led to his ouster at Indiana. And, you know, they, Ohio State just kind of lucked into, you know, right place, right time with those guys. So uh, pretty fortuitous there. Although at the same time, I think they know that Ohio State and Urban Meyer, there's a place you can go and become a head, you know, kind of rehab your, uh, I guess sure. your coaching stocks. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think I read that eight percent of um, FBS coaches right now are were at one time Urban Meyer assistants, and you know that number is only going to grow <laughs> because that, I mean yeah. they won't be around in Columbus for very long. I was actually a little surprised that uh, Greg Schiano wasn't a one and done. You know, Urban Urban asked you know assistants usually to make a two year commitment, but you know I, I feel like he probably would have made an exception for a guy like that. But you know he's back. For another year, so uh, you know they not only have Greg Schiano, they have you know the continuity of having Greg Schiano. It, it's it's pretty ridiculous though to have you know two assistants who have done those types of things. Usually, you don't really see that. Definitely, and as we get move from uh, talking coaches to talking players, Ohio State, as they generally do, lost a fair amount of talent in the NFL and replenished it with the number one uh, recruiting class in the Big Ten. But um, there's there's one guy who's still around who I, I think I feel like he'll be the guy who fans across the country when they see him going up against Oklahoma early on in the season under center at quarterback they'll just say like oh my god I can't believe J T Barrett is still there at quarterback <laughs> uh, how, how much of this team's success rests on on Barrett's shoulders and and how much of a legacy defining season is it for him personally Yeah so I think that's a really interesting question because. JT Barrett is kind of polarizing right now within the Ohio State fan base because in the last three games of the season, I think he passed for like 86 yards in against Michigan State in a game they almost lost against a team that didn't make a bowl game. And then against Michigan, he only passed for like 120-something yards, I think, and they scored like 27 or 30 points, but it was in double overtime. And I think 
the offense only scored 10 points in regulation. And then, obviously, in the Fiesta Bowl, they scored no points. And, again, he had, you know, barely over 100 passing yards. So it was a really terrible end to the season, and it wasn't just a one-game thing. But at the same time, you know, the wide receivers in the offensive line might have been complicit, complicit in that, along with the play calling. So, really, it's a question of, you know, was it a coaching thing or not? Because he was obviously very good under Tom Herman in 2014, and he's been very good at certain points in 2015 and 2016. Uh, but, you know, it, it could be that, you know, working with Tim Beck and Ed Warner was, was not the best situation for him. You know, we're about to find out with Kevin Wilson. I, I think it would be a big boost to uh, him being able to say, you know, or people being able to say that it wasn't his fault the last two seasons if he comes back uh, with a different offensive coordinator and has a lot of uh, just because of what that would show. And, and to me, that's a really big deal to be able to point to that because he's, he's going to hold probably every major passing record at Ohio State because he's a four-year starter who is in an incredibly prolific offense, whereas, you know, in the Woody Hayes days, there wasn't much throwing the ball. So he's going to hold the records regardless but and, and ha- have a lot of wins. He I think he only has like, three losses as a starter at Ohio State. But, um, yeah, it, it's... I think it would be big for his legacy to come out and put together a year like 2014. And, you know, it could be the case that they had, you know, the wrong guys running the offense the last few years, or it could just be the case that, you know, 2014 was the outlier and that he he's regressed throughout his career because that's been the case so far. So really this is a chance to show that he is capable of doing what he did as a redshirt freshman and that that's the quarterback he is. Yeah. So, Barrett will be there another year, um, but when you look at guys that ended up getting drafted in the NFL, it, it really kind of spans both sides of the ball and at key positions, which is which is pretty commonplace for Ohio State. But you look at the guys who they lost: uh, Curtis Samuel, Noah Brown, Raquan McMillan, Malik Hooker, Marshawn Lattimore. Who steps into those those slots and fills those shoes going forward? Uh, who, who are you looking to kind of emerge as the next big thing in Columbus? That's a really interesting question. Um, Just off the top of my head, I would say that I think Kendall Sheffield, uh, who is a JUCO transfer at cornerback and hasn't even won the starting job yet, but I would say uh, from everything I heard, he looks like the real deal. He should be a starter, and if he is a starter and plays to his level, he could be a first-round guy. He was a five-star who originally went to Alabama and then got stuck kind of behind Minka Fitzpatrick and saw the writing on the wall about how long it would be before he saw meaningful time there. So he, he did a Juco year and now he's at Ohio state. And I, I think he's going to be a breakout star. Uh, I think you could choose pretty much anyone on the defensive line to make an impact. Uh, it's, it's probably, you know, it's the best in the big 10, if not the country uh, just with the, you know, they had three guys who, who came back who could have gone to the NFL and that doesn't even count, you know, uh, Jerry Bosa's little brother, Nick Bosa and, who was a five-star, and they have a five-star true freshman on his way onto the field, so that's a pretty talented group. Um, and I would say uh, Jerome Baker at linebacker, you know, this could be a real big money year for him. Uh, Bruce Feldman put him in his list of uh, the annual freaks list that's the best athletes in college football. I think he was number 17 on that list, and honestly, that might have been a little low. Just You see some of the plays he makes, and it just makes you say, wow, like, how, how could someone do that? So, I think he's a guy who he has the instincts and he has the athleticism. And when you have that combination, 
as Malik Hooker showed last year, it can be really deadly. And I would look for him to have a huge year at linebacker for Ohio State. All right, we'll keep our eyes on those players. And let's get into the schedule a little bit, which for Ohio State is going to be very important, obviously, if they want to get back to the college football playoff and make some noise. They play Oklahoma again, who they, they beat last year in Norman. Um, they get another crack at Penn State. Nebraska and Wisconsin are both uh, probably contenders out of the West that they'll that they'll face in 2017. And then, of course, as always, they play Michigan in the last week of the regular season. So what are the games that you're circling on, on the calendar as, as maybe the toughest or the ones with the biggest implications heading into the next season? The, the three that stand out off the top of my head – are Oklahoma and I know you know they obviously beat them quite handily in Norman last year, but you know team back he's very good and it is Ohio State in the second week of the season and you know given that we don't know yet what the offense will look like, I, I just reserve the right to say maybe it doesn't all come together so quickly uh, just with everything with Kevin Wilson um, obviously. I believe they'll probably be a, a betting favorite of a touchdown or more, but you just never know. So that that's one that that definitely stands out for me early on. Just the uncertainty, even though it is a home game. After that, I'd say Michigan. Uh, Michigan is always going to be a game. That one's in the big house. Jim Harbaugh is a very good coach, whether Ohio State fans want to admit that or not. Uh, he's very talented. They almost beat them last year. Michigan lost a ton of talent, but. I think they could be getting towards that Ohio State level where they're able to replace that talent with recruiting. You know, Ohio State fans can't really say, oh, you know, well, they won't be any good this year. They lost that many players because they've seen their own team replace that many players from the NFL draft uh, quite successfully. So I, I think I'm not really buying that it's necessarily going to be a down year for Michigan. And you know, also weird things happen in that rivalry. You know, Michigan almost beat them in 2013 when they weren't that good. So it's just always a game that is one that Ohio State could lose, and it's obviously a crucial game. And uh, when you look at, you know, the Big Ten, that could be for the Big Ten in the final game of the season. So that's huge. And then after that, I'd say Penn State. Uh, I'm weirdly not as high on Penn State as some people just because, I think they won so many 50-50 balls last year with their offense with some receivers who aren't there anymore that I, I just want to see a little bit more from Trace McSorley. Uh, it's, it's kind of a small sample size right now, uh, although I do think that uh, you know Saquon Barkley could be the best player in the conference, and you have that, you know, that's a really good start. It's a really good place to be in. Uh, but, you know, historically – under Urban Meyer, Penn State hasn't been competitive at all at Ohio Stadium. They've had two close games at uh, Happy Valley, and then it's been they lost sixty-three to fourteen, and I think thirty-eight to ten uh, in twenty thirteen and twenty fifteen. So uh, I'm not completely sold on you know Penn State's ability to come into Ohio Stadium and challenge. But you know, like I. They do have a very strong team, and they have a really good starting piece. And you know, it could be that Trace McSorley is the real deal. But I just, I want to see, I guess, a, a little bit more of body of work. And obviously, they have different receivers. So, um, but I, I'd still put that up there because that's obviously a big one. You know, the trip to Nebraska doesn't really concern me so much. I, I think Nebraska was, you know, a good, you know, a bad team in disguise last year, and Ohio State clearly showed that, beating them sixty-two to three. They got blown out 
Bah. Uh, they lost every they lost handily to every good team they played. Um, so I'm I don't really think that one's of so much concern. All right, Ryan, a lot of good stuff from you. Before I let you go, we're going to make some predictions. Um, we've done this with all the Land of Ten writers that have joined the show and for this episode. So the first prediction I want to hear from you is the sleeper in the Big Ten West. Who, outside of maybe um, those top three uh, – I'm sorry, sleeper in the Big Ten East. Outside of those top three, um, Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan, who are probably the favorites. And honestly, I think – one of our other writers picked Michigan as a sleeper, so that's probably a fair game as well. Who's a sleeper in the East that you think could uh, fly under the radar and make it to Indianapolis? Uh, none, none of them, really. Um, I would say uh, Maryland's a team on the rise to watch out for. I, I think DJ Durkin's a great coach. Um, and I don't. I actually think you know he'll, there'll probably be a year where he finishes you know, third and, and beats one of the big three and, and gets a better job out of it. So I, I would say to watch for them. But, I mean, I don't see anyone outside of Ohio State, Penn State, or, or Michigan really uh, challenging for the title. And, and um, I'm kind of skeptical about Michigan State's program trajectory, especially with, you know, the off-the-field stuff and the, the players they had right. kicked off the team. So uh, I, I, I'm Maryland has, has had some big losses recently, but I also think they're headed in the right direction. And I think they're, they're a team that – you know, they're going to beat one of the big teams, and it's going to be a shock to people, but um, I, I really do think that's coming in the next year or two, and they'll probably finish. You know, finishing third in the Big Ten East is actually, you know, a really good thing with when you when you look at the teams you're, you'd be finishing ahead, at least one of those. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of have them tabbed as a, a team that I think will be good in the future. Yeah, it seems to be a common theme is that people are really high in Maryland, maybe not as a contender this year or next, but uh, headed in the right direction under DJ Durkin, especially with the recruiting class he brought in. I think I think his recruiting class in 2017 was fourth in the Big Ten um, behind the Big Three, which was uh, Ohio State, Michigan, and uh, Penn State. So that, definitely a, a program to keep an eye on. Um, I want to get your official prediction on a Big Ten East champion coming up next season. Are you, are you sticking with uh, your beat, or are you, you going outside the beat to – Choose one of those other two. I will say that Ohio State goes eleven and one, but loses to the right team, quote unquote, and makes it to the Big Ten championship game. Uh, the past two years, they've also gone eleven and one, but you know, ended up losing to the team that uh, ended up being the Big Ten sure. East champion. So I do. I, I it's really hard for me to predict a team to go undefeated in college football these days. You know, especially with that schedule. I just don't think it's very realistic at all. I don't know what team will beat them, but, I mean, it stands to reason that someone will. Uh, but I, I I just feel in my gut that, you know, it, it's kind of weird that Urban Meyer only has one Big Ten championship in, in five years, and I, I think he's he's kind of primed to get another one, especially with the, the coaching staff they have and the level of talent. So I, I do think that they'll represent the Big Ten East. All right, so how about over in the West? Wisconsin has... I believe appeared in four of the six Big Ten championship games to date, and they set up pretty nicely this season with their schedule. Who do you think's come out of the West to uh, meet your your pick of Ohio State in the championship game? Yeah, I do think it will be uh, Wisconsin. I, I think it helps that they don't have Ohio State on the schedule. You know, that's kind of like a, a free space because Nebraska does. Um, I also 
your question how good Nebraska really is. Uh, I think Minnesota could be one of those teams that sneaks in there one year uh, under P.J. Fleck, but, you know, it's, it's year one for him, and I, I think it'll probably take a couple years before he's, he's ready to do something like that. And, you know, Iowa, I, I go back and forth on that all the time, but um, I, I frankly don't think they're, they're good enough right now to beat Wisconsin over the, the course of an entire conference schedule. So uh, I'm just going to go with Wisconsin. That's a pretty safe play, but I also think it, it's a pretty fair one given the talent they have and uh, you know the way the schedule sets up for them because Iowa and Nebraska both have to play Ohio State and they don't. So you know that's a, a pretty helpful thing to have in your favor. Do you think uh, Wisconsin would have any shot of beating the Buckeyes in, in Indy or uh, is it going to be – Another uh, yeah. Ohio State championship, like like in two thousand, I think it was fourteen when they uh, right. played pretty bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I I would probably pick Ohio State to win. Uh, if you ask me, I think Ohio State will be the Big Ten champion. But you know, anything can happen on one night. Ohio State should know that better than anyone. Um, you know, with some of the games they've played over the last couple of years. Um, obviously, the twenty fourteen championship game was was insane. But I, I you know, it was, you know. No one on those that in that game is really even around anymore, um, you know, with a couple exceptions, obviously. But um, yeah, I, I just think it, it's anything can happen. So I, I would never dismiss Wisconsin's chances, especially because if you're a division champion, you know, you're a pretty strong team. I, I think their the gap between the East and the West is is still pretty big, but I, I think Wisconsin is is a strong team that belongs in that category with. You know, the three teams in the East. So I would say, yeah, they can absolutely give Ohio State a game, and you know they could win in the right conditions. So I, I wouldn't dismiss their chances outright, but I would pick Ohio State to win. Agreed, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's – there's much debate that top to bottom the East is stronger than uh, – especially at the very top, stronger than the West. But I, I think uh, Wisconsin <coughs> can compete with, with any of those teams at the top of the, top of the East division. Um, so one more prediction before I let you go. It's going to be the Big Ten player with the best chance to win the Heisman. And I also want your thoughts on if the Big Ten can maybe get multiple guys on the stage in New York City in December because I think there are definitely a few guys who have the potential, but I want to know your thoughts on uh, the Heisman potential of the conference this year. Yeah, so um, off the top of my head, I, I can't really think of anyone from Michigan. Uh, my, my number one most obvious choice is Saquon Barkley. I think he's the best player in the conference. Uh, he's just an absolute monster. Uh, Penn State has shown they will feed him the ball uh, until his legs fall off. I think he had almost 100 more carries than Mike Weber last year. I think he had 270 carries. Uh, that's a pretty fair amount. You know, it's, you know, 20 a game or so. So, um, he'll get his opportunities. I, I think Penn State will be good. Um, I, I think they'll score plenty, um, and they'll play in a lot of showcase games, which will help. You know, having you know, he'll be able to show what he can do against Michigan and show what he can do against Ohio State. So he, he's the most logical choice to me. I would say JT Barrett has that potential if he turns in a 2014 type season. I don't. I don't think he'll win the Heisman. Uh, I wouldn't say he's a chance to win the Heisman, but I would say he has a chance to put together a good enough season to be a Heisman finalist and and be in New York if it's like a you know a five man you know finalist group. I, I think if everything goes well and and you know he finds that old form again, he could be there. And it could you know the Heisman lately has has mostly favored 
the person with the best offensive statistics on the best team. Uh, he would obviously fit that bill if Ohio State is one of the best teams in the country. So uh, that would be another choice that really jumps out on me. Um, so, you know, you kind of consider – it's not really fair the way it is, but, you know, you, you at, these days you need to be on a top-ten team and, and be their, their best offensive producer. So that's why those two guys really jump out at me. All right, sounds good. We'll mark it down. Um, that's all I got for you, Ryan. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. And enjoy the season, man. It should be a, should be a fun ride in, uh, in Buckeye country. Yeah, it's going to be a wild year for the Big Ten as a whole, so I'm really looking forward to covering it. All right, man, likewise, and uh, take care. Have a good rest of the day. All right, thanks. You too. So we've had plenty of great analysis so far. Thanks again to Rachel and Ryan. And we'll wrap up our Big Ten East analysis with Tyler Donahue, who covers Penn State for Land of Ten. Tyler's really familiar with the East Coast, having served on Rutgers recruiting staff under Greg Schiano, and I know that it's a very Michigan and Ohio State-loaded episode so far. Tyler offers a ton of great insight on other schools in the Big Ten East, and we close things out with a lot of really in-depth coverage of the defending Big Ten champions, Penn State. As I mentioned, Tyler covers the Nittany Lions, so there's no shortage of insight on his end, and we'll get to it right now. For more Big Ten East analysis, I'm joined by Tyler Donahue. Tyler covers Penn State and college football recruiting for Land of Ten. So be sure to check out all his good stuff at landof10.com. And while you're at it, follow him on Twitter at TD's Take. Tyler, how's it going, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for jumping on. And uh, before we get into some Penn State stuff, this is a Big Ten East preview episode, and you were actually on a Big Ten East team staff before they were even in the in the Big Ten, right? That's right, the old Big East, if, if those historians out there recall. The, the Big East uh, had some pretty good teams in it back then as well. Right, you were uh, you were on the Rutgers staff under Greg Schiano? Exactly, yep, 2006 through 2008. Um, so some strong years for the program and obviously uh, set Schiano up for his leap to the NFL a few years later after that. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that time at Rutgers. Uh, I mean, like you said, you guys had some serious talent and success there. Everyone remembers uh, Ray Rice especially uh, to come out of there, and, and they've had some other notable NFL players come out of that uh, that era of Rutgers football. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I was on the recruiting staff, so we were kind of obviously focusing on the future, but the, the roster as structured, you know, there was a lot of former three-star recruits looking back on it um, who, you know, got into the program Guy Wasciano and that staff, and, and they made a lot of just historic moves for the program. Remember, um, you know, Rutgers versus Princeton was the first game ever back in 1867. So there's, you know, a lot of history, but not a lot of great history at Rutgers in place leading up to those years. And 2006, Ray Rice's sophomore year, he had another running back there with him, Brian Leonard. They were they were quite a tandem. Um, and then, you know, guys like Kenny Britt, Tyquan Underwood stepped up at wide receiver. Uh, they had Mike Teal at quarterback for, for three straight years, each year that time, and, and he really progressed. And looking back on it, he looks better every year because quarterback's been in a very inconsistent position for Rutgers in the decade to follow. Um, you know, defensively, you had the McCourty twins, who, who both went on to, to long NFL careers, both still playing football. Devin McCourty, now a pro bowler with, with the New England Patriots. Uh, you know, they were a tandem back there. And it was special, you know. The the, the one win that a lot of people will remember uh, was November of 2006, 
and, and Rutgers kind of ruined the party for Louisville. That's when their, their quarterback was Brian Brom, and uh, they had a lot of hype around them. Uh, they were top two or top three in the country, and, and Rutgers um, beat them that game. The, the fans stormed the field. It was one of those Thursday nights on ESPN. Uh, with you know, with ESPN's number one crew in the booth, and uh, it was a pretty remarkable season. Um, you know, and back then the Big East was really interesting. Uh, the uh, overall, I mean, you had uh, Louisville, which which was really impressive the first time for, for, for Petrino when he was there, and um, also in the mix, West Virginia, where they had Pat White and, and Noel Devine and Steve Slayton, and they were just almost unstoppable on offense. And that was the one team Rutgers could never get through. There was two opportunities. Uh, to win the Big East Championship, really. And, um, in 06, it was a multiple overtime game in Morgantown that, that prevented Rutgers from going to a BCS Bowl. They lost that game uh, narrowly in kind of a dogfight with, with Pat White and company. Um, you know, Pittsburgh was in it back then, and it was, it was really an interesting time. I mean, a, a lot of teams were, were, had one foot out, out the door and one foot on the exit door, and you wondered what would happen with Rutgers, and ultimately they were – uh, you know, kind of cast aside a little bit and left with AAC, and, and that was a little bit of a, the misfit toys group because it was teams from all over the place. But ultimately, I, I think Coach Chiano's vision and goal was to get Rutgers into, um, you know, a BCS, um, BCS at the time conference, now Power Five, and ultimately, you know, he really helped lead towards that. Um, you know, he laid the foundation for the stadium expansion, um, you know, and so it was a really special time at Rutgers, and, and obviously they're, they're kind of in rebuilding that mode right now, but not too far off from where it was when, when Cochiano first got to campus. So you got the right leadership structure and uh, laid that foundation. You never know what could lie ahead. Yeah, and that area you just described of uh, Rutgers football and the players you described, like on West Virginia, that was – kind of the time when I started following college football as a young fan. So really, when I started started following it, Rutgers was, you know, one of the better, more prominent teams in the country. That, Like you said, they were on national TV, and uh, that I vividly remember that game when they, they stormed the field and beat Louisville. So knowing the landscape and the scene out in, in Jersey like you do and did, uh, what do you think this current staff at Rutgers uh, under Chris Ash has to do to get them back to – a similar level to what you saw in the uh, the late 2000s. Well, I think uh, you know you really need to, you know, I think the you know you really need to protect your home turf. You, you you've got to get some Jersey guys, some top caliber Jersey guys, to stay in in the state. I mean, they've had trouble getting more than two or three of the top 25 recruits from New Jersey. I feel like uh, for a few years in a row now, and that's going to add up because. The way Shiano put this thing together, he was probably getting, you know, maybe five or six of the top 12 guys in New Jersey, and then he would supplement that with uh, with pieces from South Florida, which was a really big targeted region for them, uh, Maryland, Virginia area, you know, going to Pennsylvania for some guys, New York. Um, so right now, you know, the way Penn State, Michigan, um, Ohio State, even Maryland, they're all so aggressive right now in the Garden State with recruiting um, since Rutgers joined the Big Ten and even before that. Uh, you know, Penn State coming in plucking players uh, two, two years ago. Um, you saw Michigan sign, I think, six players out of New Jersey, headlined by the number one overall Peppers. prospect with Rashawn Gary. So, uh, and and then before that, Jabril Preppers goes right. to Michigan. So yeah. there's a track record of, of these teams coming in and basically uh, playing the role of pirate and just storming storming New Jersey and and taking all these players away. And Rutgers is kind of left with uh, while they're solid players, scholarship players, Power Five players. 
They're not guys um, who are going to maybe elevate your program to where you want it to be. Now, last year, obviously, rough way to start for things. Um, you know, let's get that out of the way. Uh, two victories overall, none of them in the Big Ten. Um, some incredibly lopsided losses against Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Michigan State. Those are teams that you want to, you know, show up for and, and really compete hard against. I, I think they were, honestly, I think they were pretty fundamentally sound. Um, by the time they neared the end of the season with some, some of the stuff they did, but they just really struggled on getting big plays. I think a, a big part of that, um, they, they lost a heck of a player in Janarian Grant who can do a lot of things on offense. He, he's a special teams star. Um, he, he was lost for the season with an injury. That didn't help them as far as explosiveness. Um, you know, Jerry Kill, the offensive coordinator, I think that provides some, some optimistic um, outlook for, for the offense. But, you know, we've seen some changeover with the offensive, uh, you know, formula at, at Rutgers kind of repeatedly. Um, you know, and, and again, I mentioned the quarterback situation. It's been a little bit unresolved. There have been some guys who have taken the reins for a few years. Gary Nova did for, for a few years, but never quite hit his stride as a guy that you knew what you were getting every single Saturday. Um, so quarterback's going to be big. I think that's going to be uh, – if they can find a quarterback uh, who's going to be an extension of the staff, reliable – um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what, how that shakes out this year. Uh, they lost Tylen Odin. Um, well, he left the team. He's gone from the team. I don't, I don't know if he necessarily lost him, but no longer a member of the roster. Um, I like a the quarterback they brought in this year, Jonathan Lewis. Um, he's a true freshman. I don't know if he'll be, be able to, to really put his name in the hat uh, for, for starters reps sometime this season, but I think long-term he could be a very viable candidate to, to upgrade the offense. And they brought in a young player named Bo Melton, who I think will be an immediate impact guy potentially in the slot, maybe as a running back. He's out of the New Jersey area. He's one of those few blue-chip New Jersey guys they signed in 2017. So I think you've got to prove yourself all over again. Remember, there was a time where you mentioned these kids were growing up, um, and those were the games they remember. They remember big wins against Louisville, big games against West Virginia, uh, beating number two USF in 2007 when USF was on a roll. A lot of primetime games, those Thursday night games, and Greg Schiano was, was extremely popular in the state of New Jersey. So I think they've got to kind of reestablish themselves as a, you know, a legitimate destination. It's tough to sell kids on a rebuild because they only have a three, four year window. And a lot of them are focused on, you know, competing for championships and playing in those big games. And um, when Penn state and, and Michigan and, and uh, some of these other powers like Ohio state are knocking on your door and uh, Notre Dame also recruiting hard in New Jersey uh, that can be difficult to say no to because those coaches, the staffs, the track record is a little bit more proven. So, you know, Chris Ash right now, I think uh, if he can just reset things, show those strides this year, get some players on camp, uh, on the campus for some big games, and and maybe go pull off an upset or two, that could go a long way. You're just looking for improvement after what they went through last season. All right, I know you're the Penn State uh, Penn State beat writer, but that was a, a ton of great Rutgers stuff. I think you could cover both if you if you had to. Um, <laughs> so yeah, while we're on the uh, subject of rebuilding programs, uh, we know it's a tall task in the East with some of the behemoths at the top of that division, but I'm curious, uh, what, what you like about some of the teams that are scratching and clawing similar Rutgers to get to that upper echelon in the big 10 East. You've got Maryland making some moves under, uh, DJ Durkin, Indiana's in an interesting spot coming off back to back bowls, but, uh, facing the departure of their, their head coach, Kevin Wilson, and, uh, and Michigan State, as crazy as it sounds, trying to kind of scramble back into the conversation uh, that Penn State has kind of switched places with them since uh, in the last year at the top of the Big Ten. 
when Michigan State took a step back. So which project program, which rebuilding program do you think has the best path forward uh, in the Big Ten East? Yeah, I think I'm definitely definitely intrigued by, by Maryland, DJ Dirk and what he's doing down there. Uh, they were finally able, much like Rutgers, that's an area that gets just totally sieged by everybody else in the Big Ten, and then you factor in some of the ACC schools that come through and, and, and grab town out of Maryland. They did put together a nice recruiting class uh, this past year, probably their best in some time. Um, but I think maybe my focus, uh, to, to definitively answer your question, probably goes um, up to East Lansing. I think Michigan State, and that's because you wonder if last, you know, last year almost, if you look at the track record up there, and it looks more like an, an outlier than it does a trend. And I know that they had a pretty hectic offseason. Um, you know, players tossed from the team and some very good players, some former top recruits that, that are no longer with this team because of things that happen off the field and, and things that will probably linger with that program as far as um, things they're going to need to deal with with investigations and such. Um, but I think, you know, it, 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 as strange as it is to say, uh, I think Michigan State's roster can maybe be galvanized by, by that situation. They can be galvanized by reviewing what happened last year and basically burying it in the backyard and, and getting back on the same page because this is a proud program. I mean, L.J. Scott, I think, is a, a, a tremendous running back. Um, he's a guy that I think you know isn't too far behind some of the very top guys in, in the Big Ten. Maybe this year he makes another leap into that group. Um, I think L.J. Scott's just a guy that if, if they find a way to get him 25-plus carries, he's tough to bring down. He can wear out defenses. Um, I think the 2017 recruiting class that Michigan State brought in, there's going to be opportunities for them to fill holes because of some of the roster departures, because some of the starters didn't play up the caliber last year. And I think I, lo- I really like what they do. I think they have a lot of hidden gems, a lot of guys that maybe didn't get those uh, more upper echelon offers on the recruiting trail last year. But Michigan State, uh, nice job identifying them. They've always done a nice job uh, turning three-star prospects into very efficient starters. Um, so I just think the track record's really in place uh, um, for that coaching staff. Um, I don't know how much of a bounce back. I don't know if they're going to go right back into immediate Big Ten contention. I don't. I don't think that will be the case. But I do think uh, they'll go from what turned out to be a, a pretty disastrous 2017 season uh, to one that I think pro- maybe reaches a bowl game. I think that's probably a realistic expectation, and that's a nice step forward for a program that, again, on the field and off the field. Um, not really up to where they have been accustomed to being um, for so long. Yeah, Michigan State, I think, is more of a reset than a rebuild. I mean, like you said, the foundations are in place, and they just kind of got to shake off last year, get cleaned up off the field, and uh, and move forward. Um, so let's get to the defending Big Ten champions. It's it's still remarkable to me how Penn State was 2-2 two and two last season. The fan base was grumbling. They got crushed by Michigan. And then all of a sudden they just ripped off a huge run all the way to a Big Ten championship and a, uh, a Rose Bowl appearance. So, uh, Tyler, can can Penn State match that type of season in 2017? And and how do they how do they top it even? Yeah, I think they can they can absolutely match it. I think their expectations are to exceed it. And remember, they it wasn't just the Michigan loss. You know, the 39 point Michigan loss in Ann Arbor. It was also a three point loss at Pittsburgh, and sure. talk to most Penn State fans, and they don't like to call Pittsburgh a rival. They <laughs> they don't like to think of it that way. They like to think they own the state. So that one stung as well. Uh, but after that, as you mentioned, I mean, it, it took an overtime game against Minnesota. Uh, it took, you know, some really special moments against Ohio State. But once they got through that, 
all of a sudden things were clicking. I think the really exciting part for Penn State is, is what they're doing offensively. I mean, Alex, when you look at what they accomplished in the first year under uh, play caller Joe Moorhead, it's really, really impressive. They broke school records for total offense, passing yards. They tied the school record for points scored. Um, you know, obviously that was a huge, huge season for the offense. And then you kind of remember that all occurred under a first-year coordinator. Um, he's putting a system in with a new program, and it was with the first-year starting quarterback, Trace McSorley, who takes over for Christian Hackenberg. We all remember the the, the hype, the buildup around Christian Hackenberg for those three years. And, yes, he dealt with the coaching change and, uh, you know, different offenses. But Trace McSorley goes out there and puts up a better season than we ever saw from Hackenberg during his three years in Happy Valley. Uh, he, could ha- he could be around for two more years. So I think, you know, I got a chance to speak with, with McSorley. I got a chance to speak with Mike Gesicki, a record-setting tight end for them. Um, both those guys are back. I, on Saturday, they both seemed to, to think that, we're in store for a lot of fireworks this season. They said, you know, once they got going last year, they've carried that momentum offensively through the offseason. Everyone's on the same page. Mike Kosicki actually said if you just gave him a pen and paper, gave him a chance to draw up the best kind of offense uh, for a tight end and wide receivers to enjoy, he said he couldn't come up with a better one than what he saw uh, in, in meetings every day with, with Coach Moorhead. Um, so they only lost, uh, you know, the, their big missing component from last year is, is Chris Godwin. Now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he left after his junior year, double-digit touchdowns last year. But they have the depth behind him. They're, they're going to have a chance uh, to, to replace him uh, with, with several receivers. I like some of the young players they got brought in, but they've got guys that are stuck around. Uh, Juwan Johnson it was a big-time breakout guy during the camp. Um, you've got Saeed Blacknall, who, who could be a big-time player, Deshaun Hamilton, DeAndre Tompkins. Um, so these, these are experienced receivers. These are guys who are ready to, to make that leap. And then I've got to mention, obviously, the man that's behind McSorley, that's Saquon Barkley, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about him more at length here, but he is an incredibly, incredibly special player in that backfield. We've seen several running backs come through the Penn State, um, you know, offensive backfield, then go on to NFL success. Um, this guy is separating himself from a lot of them right now, and I think a big junior season for him, Life is only going to continue to grow. People are going to be pointing to uh, him being in Manhattan uh, for the trophy ceremony in in Detroit and or in December, I should say. And um, you know, ultimately, I think a lot of folks look at McSorley as a you know potential off the charts NFL draft guy. So he's got going to have a lot of noise around him. Um, I saw this with Ray Rice, obviously at, at a school with less prowess but entering a season where he had similar expectations, maybe not so much in the NFL draft, but a guy who was viewed as a first-rounder. Um, so it's just he's going to have to find a way to stay focused, keep, keep his eyes forward, uh, continue to do what he does. And, and so far what I've seen and the kind of physical condition he is in and, and what he's talking about and the way he's uh, you know representing himself in front of reporters, he is as balanced, grounded, hungry, and, and just – uh, phenomenal physically that, that he's ever been in his entire career. So big things for the offense, and I think that's where I tie things, uh, tie it into the shooting star that, that Penn State is right now. I think they are going to put up a ton of points, and I think that offense and its explosiveness will keep them in games if they happen to fall behind early. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine that offense taking much of a step back. Uh, anything can obviously happen with injuries or whatever else, but just with the amount of weapons they have and the depth he mentioned it's really hard to imagine uh that offense faltering but yeah let's talk a little bit more about Saquon Barkley because uh this type of player doesn't come around all that often Bruce Feldman at Sports Illustrated listed him at 
number one at the very top of his annual college football freaks list, which sort of gives you an idea of how his athleticism is valued from a national perspective. So can expectations get any higher for Saquon entering the season? And, and when's the last time that uh, Penn State had an athlete with such hype heading into a, uh, into a season? That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty remarkable to, to, to even, you know, to look back and think, I mean, the, the last time I remember a Penn State player having this kind of hype would have been Larry Johnson when he got going and, and, and he almost won himself a Heisman Trophy, I believe went to Carson Palmer out of USC that year. Um, he was a guy that I think regardless of where you were in the country, uh, you were aware of and, and, and he was in that national conversation. Um, you know, Christian Hackenberg, if we talk about just preseason hype, I think almost from the moment he stepped on campus uh, when that Bill O'Brien offensive scene coming from working with Tom Brady, now getting a five-star quarterback, spring from day one as a true freshman, I think Christian Hackenberg had a ton of expectations built up around him. Um, so maybe that's the last time I, I, I can recall a player entering the season with those kind of, uh, you know, basically accolades and, and just people will be disappointed if they don't reach a certain milestone during this year. Um, so Saquon Barkley bench pressed 30 times. Uh, he had 30 reps on the bench on uh, at their Lift for Life event on Saturday morning. And uh, my colleague, Corey Massasak, came up with a great stat here. One running back in the past three years has had 27 or more reps at the NFL Combine on the bench. That was Samaje Perrine out of uh, Oklahoma. He had 30 in 2017. But Perrine ran a 4.65 in the 40-yard dash. Barkley right now is in the mid-4.3s. Wow. So physical freak is right. You know, he, he is the athletic specimen that you want to get the ball in his hands as much as possible. And remember, he did have, you know, close to 1,500 rushing yards last year, but he also had 400 receiving yards. Um, and that's huge out of the backfield because he's somebody that you can keep out there um, down after down after down. He's comfortable as a receiver. He's effective in that, in that role as well. Um, he's really on the same page as Trace McSorley. Those two are a great tandem in the backfield. Remember McSorley, He's got some wheels on him, too, so that's something the defense needs to account for when they're covering uh, Barkley. Um, so I think going into this season, if he duplicates what he did um, last year, and that's you know that would probably be below the expectations right now. You hear people talking about 2,000 yards, 1,800 yards. If he just does what he did last year again on the ground, um, he would become Penn State's all-time uh, rushing leader after just three years in his career. That, that currently belongs to Evan Royster, who ran for 3,932 yards. Um, so he's within striking distance of a lot of school records. Um, and, and, you know, basically the dream scenario here, I think if expectations were in place is uh, Saquon Barkley, you know, blows up again, runs for close to 2,000 yards, maybe has 25 to 30 total touchdowns, uh, gets on the Heisman podium, uh, helps lead Penn State to the playoffs, and, and then and next spring um, he, he's in the conversation to be the first running back or potentially first overall player off the board. Uh, when Roger Goodell steps to the mic for the NFL draft. So those are the kind of expectations we're talking about, and there are people who are realistically, uh, they don't think it's a far cry, they don't think it's a, it's a reach to, to expect those things. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of, of things on his shoulders going into the season. There's a heavy load, um, but if anyone's going to handle it, 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 it's this guy. So really excited to see him run out the gates against Akron uh, in the opener and then, you know, keep it going all the way through. Uh, they got a matchup against Pittsburgh pretty early in the season again, and, and that's a game that people certainly want to get a nice taste of revenge. Um, so Barkley's going to have his opportunities early um, to validate the hype and lead going into the Big Ten season. If he gets on a roll, 
he is somebody you're going to see consistently placed on those Heisman watch lists. So, um, you know, again, I don't think there's anybody quite like this kid in a while at Penn State. Hackenberg, I said, had a lot of the hype, a lot of the expectations. Didn't exactly meet them by the, by the end of his career. Uh, you know, it, it was different kind of time for the program, a lot of moving parts, and, and not all of that is on him. But I think in terms of Barkley, if he's able to go out and, and do this again as a junior and, and kind of his body of work, and, and he'll become down the road along with James Franklin, he'll be viewed as the face of this renaissance a rebirth uh, at Penn State. He'll be kind of the, one of those figureheads when you look back at, at what this program uh, accomplished here during these few years. For a second there, I thought you were going to say uh, Barkley's also going to achieve world peace and uh, cure all the world's diseases. So, you know, just a, a little to-do list there for Saquon Barkley. Just a, yeah, uh, you know, yes. minor achievements to, to look forward to. But um, let's move on from Barkley to maybe someone on the roster that has not arrived on the, uh, on the scene yet. Last year... It's hard to uh, hard to argue it's anyone else uh, than Mike Gesicki, who was a, a tight end who had some serious struggles with drops and um, had a rough uh, year before the Big Ten Championship year last year, but really broke out last year and became a focal point of that Penn State offense. So uh, on either side of the ball, I'm curious uh, who you think will be a breakout player. And I know, personally, I know Marcus Allen is, is a great player already, could have gone to the NFL but I think he could even take a, a step forward this year. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on who will break out and be a uh, focal point, point on either side of the ball that we maybe haven't heard about as much. I'm with you on Allen. I, I think that I think he is ready to, to really emerge as, as one of the premier defensive secondary players in Big Ten football. I mean, he's already there, but I think he's really ready to, to take the mantle and, and become a, a, a just the guy that people talk about over and over and over again. But I got to remember. I think he's on a few preseason All America, you know, maybe third team. So I wouldn't necessarily call that a breakout. So right. I think with the Gesicki breakout is a nice segue. So last year, Mike Gesicki plays, uh, you know, just about every snap it seems. He had he struggled to, to maintain his weight around 250. I think by the end of the year, he, he had dropped a considerable amount of weight just because of the of the work he was putting in on the field. And he was the only tight tight end on Penn State's roster who caught a pass last year. So that's going to change. That's obviously something they want to, to try to shake up. And I think a breakout candidate is at tight end. Jonathan Holland, um, a guy who was recruited by some schools at defensive end coming out of high school, he's hit his groove at Penn State right now. He's an athletic guy, uh, a very large guy. He's not quite as uh, quite as receiver-esque as Gesicki. I think Gesicki in the open field, uh, the way he run routes, uh, he, he, he played receiver in high school. Um, but Jonathan Holland is more of a, a more of a lumbering tight end, but he's still he can move. He can shake a little bit. He can break tackles. He led the team in catches at the spring game. I believe he had eight receptions in that contest. He drew a lot of uh, strong reviews uh, from Coach Franklin during spring camp. The other guy on offense uh, in the passing game, uh, Jawan Johnson, you got to look out for this kid. I think he is definitely someone to get 40-plus uh, receptions this year, and that might be playing a little bit low. Um, he's a redshirt sophomore. He's the younger brother of George Johnson. Uh, used to play a defensive end for Rutgers. He went on to play in the NFL for several years. Uh, he looks a lot like his brother. The difference is his brother was an NFL defensive end. He's a wide receiver. So that should give you an indication of how big this guy is. He's got the big, broad shoulders. He's six foot four, 225 pounds right now. Um, really great catch radius extension. Uh, he had, I think, five or six catches during the spring game. And he's really the guy, when you talk to the quarterbacks, to the offensive coaches, to Franklin himself, 
know, who, who had the big spring, who had the big spring. Jawan Johnson's name repeatedly came up. So I think as they're looking to fill that void uh, with Godwin now gone and, and in the NFL, I think uh, that Jawan Johnson is a guy a lot of people looking at for a big season. We'll see if he can come out here in August and, and put together another strong body of work. If that's the case, um, he should be, be getting a lot of reps. He should be a, a focal point in the rotation and a guy that could be a, a major threat in the red zone with his size and ability to box out defensive backs. And then sticking on offense, Alex, um, Saquon Barkley can't do it all. You don't want to run him into the ground by the time you get to November, December. Um, so I think that, you know, maybe get Miles Sanders involved a little bit more. Miles Sanders was one of my favorite overall uh, running back prospects just a couple of years ago. Last year as a true freshman, uh, he was featured a bit in the backfield. He was also featured as a return man in special teams. You know, I, I think that you get him a little bit more involved, uh, you know, some plays here, plays there, get him ready to potentially become the heir apparent to, to Barkley. Um, he he's a guy who can make some X factor kind of plays and, and momentum swinging plays. Uh, if he if Barkley's getting a blow for a series, I think Miles Sanders may be ready to to become that heir apparent and, and build up on the scene. And then uh, one one true freshman for you on defense. We got to give the defense some love. There's a lot of excitement around Lamont Wade right now, the defensive back uh, from near Pittsburgh. Actually, he was a huge recruiting victory for Penn State in the 2017 cycle, committing last winter getting on campus as an early enrollee, um, a lot of hype around him during spring camp. Uh, now he's releasing uh, now he's releasing rap videos, so that's <laughs> adding to the myth around this kid before he even gets to the field. Uh, but I can tell you he's a tenacious player. He scored touchdowns in a bunch of ways during his high school career, and I do think he, he is going to get some time in this defensive backfield, push the starters at cornerback, uh, get on the field in nickel packages, and I'm really excited to see him and his growth as August comes because he is physically and I believe mentally prepared to be a big time Big Ten player. I think he could he could warrant all freshman consideration in the conference if he's able to get enough snaps. For sure, and uh, I'll be sure to check out his game and check out his mixtape as well. So gotta do it, gotta do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So before uh, before we get to some final predictions here for the season, I got one more. Penn State related question for you. Um, what is one game you're going to have to circle if you're a Penn State fan or any Big Ten fan? What is one Penn State game you have to circle on the calendar for 2017? What's the one that has the biggest implications for the upcoming season? Sure. Well, I, I think the, the one hurdle that everyone wants to make sure that they get cleared and, and probably do it definitively is September 9th against Pittsburgh. Again, the second game of the season, that was the case last year. It was at Pittsburgh, and they lost. Um, so you want to take care of business in that game, and that's sandwiched between games against Akron and Georgia State, the first three games at home. Looking down the schedule, though, for me, it's that game against Michigan. Um, it's the whiteout game at Penn State. There's going to be a ton of excitement there, guaranteed to be a full house, 107,000 fans. And, uh, you know, Michigan took it to Penn State last year, and, and, and Jim Harbaugh's had a nice run against Penn State. Um, and you can surely know that a, a veteran Penn State team that brings back a lot more players than Michigan brings back, they're going to vividly remember what it felt like to lose to the Wolverines by 39 points. And at that time, you know, maybe they were questioning themselves in the direction of the program, and we know what it did to the program after that. The Michigan game, uh, whether it was directly correlated or not, that was the blip on the radar that, that Penn State, you know, that was kind of the kick in the butt that Penn State needed uh, and then they took off, and they were a completely different program by the end of the year, the way they were performing on both sides of the ball. 
Um, so I think with, <clears throat> with Michigan, um, a lot of people are going to say the Ohio State game maybe isn't that the one to watch. They're at they're at Columbus, but you got to get through Michigan first. Michigan is a home game on October 21st. You need to protect your home turf in the Big Ten. You got to win all those home games, um, and it's it's going to be a recruiting extravaganza, probably the, the biggest recruiting event you can imagine. Um, during the season, uh, every recruit I talk to says they want to get to that game. Um, just the, uh, I think four years ago, when Mike Kosicki and Saquon Barkley were recruits, they were at a Michigan game. It was a whiteout situation, just like this will be. And with the four overtimes, Penn State won it. Both those guys end up committing not too soon after. So um, you know they finally remember the experience. I think the recruits that come in will remember that experience as well. Um, and on the field, you know, I think these guys are just going to be pumped up. You can't look past some of these other matchups, Iowa, Indiana, Northwestern preceding it. Um, but, you know, that, that is the game out of circle on my calendar because if you win that one, um, things are looking very good. You go to Ohio State, and, uh, you know, so if you lose that game, Ohio State is essentially a must-win almost, right? Um, I'm not saying that, that you're going to take any game for granted, but if you beat Michigan – you, you, and you suffer a loss to Ohio State, maybe it's something you can bounce back. If you lose back-to-back games in that stretch, you're going to have a really hard time getting any consideration for, for the college football playoff or, or going to a conference championship again. So I think Michigan is the game. You can get through that. It's absolutely huge, and it can kind of springboard them to the, to the final stretch of their season. And after Ohio State, um, you know, you've got, you've got Michigan State, Rutgers, Nebraska, Maryland, um, that's not exactly, you know, murderer's row. There's some, there's some challenges there, um, but that is the crux of your schedule, home against Michigan at Ohio State. And the reason I say Michigan is that the number one game to, to circle on your calendar is you've got to get through that one first before you can get to Ohio State. Absolutely. And it's, absolutely, it's for sure going to be interesting to see if Penn State can follow up. You know, it was a remarkable season last year, especially without the presumed, you know, 2-2 two and two star. I don't see them dropping – Two games early in the season, especially with the uh, some of the non-conference opponents you mentioned, as long as they can get by Pitt. So we'll see what they can do for an encore. And uh, last thing for you, Tyler, we are doing predictions with all the Land of Ten writers that are joining us for these couple of preview football episodes. So the first prediction I'm going to have you make is, we kind of touched on it earlier, but I'm going to have, have you pick one team from the Big Ten East who you think is a sleeper to contend with Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan at the top of the conference. Who's your sleeper in the East? I like I said, I think Michigan State is in line for a bounce back year. I think they can they can beat they can beat someone and really shake things up. They can they can they can, they can pull off a victory or two that people were not anticipating, especially after last year, and muddle the situation and, and really put some teams in dire straits, uh, you know, whether it's a Penn State or an Ohio State or Michigan. I have a feeling they're just going to throw a wrench into what everyone thinks are the laid-out plans uh, for, for Big Ten football here in 2017. So that would be the sleeper. That would be the snake in the grass that you need to watch out for. All right. And how about uh, how about your Big Ten East champion prediction? Are you gonna are you gonna stick with the hometown team? Are you gonna stick with the the beat? Or are you gonna uh, you gonna go off the beaten path a little bit? Uh, you know, if, if Penn State was was coming off losing, you know, uh, 15 starters and they were totally unknown on offense, I, I would be a lot more likely to venture off the beat. But right now, you know, just speaking with these guys and knowing what they did last year, I think everything's just in a really good situation for them. I do think Ohio State 
is the team that stands in their way here. Uh, obviously, I love what Ohio State has put together uh, every year uh, in the recruiting classes, and, and that's now reflected on their roster. It's absolutely loaded. Um, and, and at quarterback, if Barry goes down or if they, they just need someone else for that game for some reason, they've got a great quarterback uh, group to turn to. Um, but, but I think, you know, I do think Penn State is going to win the Big Ten East. I think they're going to get back into the championship game, and, and, and a big part of that is I expect even greater things from a Penn State offense. You know, last year they averaged 14 more points per game than they did in 2015. I, obviously I'm not expecting the two-touchdown leap again into this year, but I think they'll actually surpass their points per game total from last year. All right, so Penn State is the pick out of the East. Who are you going to pick out of the West to meet them in Indianapolis? I know we got uh, Wisconsin has a pretty favorable schedule, and they seem to be in the Big Ten championship game every year. And then you got some other contenders in the West. Uh, you got Nebraska trying to build some momentum under Mike Riley. Northwestern's always dangerous. Iowa, you know, seems to be solid almost every year. Who are you picking out of the West to meet Penn State and in Indianapolis? Yeah, I think Nebraska might be just uh, just a year away from from really taking it taking it to the to the title game. Um, I, I have a hard time venturing away. From Wisconsin, so I guess I'm telling you, I'm expecting a rematch uh, in the Big Ten championship. Uh, Wisconsin, you know, 21 wins in two years uh, under the coaching staff. That, that's pretty good, pretty darn good. And obviously, last year they got on a roll. That they found themselves a, a full-time starter with Alex Hornibrook, and, and that's huge to know your situation and have that clarity behind center. And the interesting thing for them is there always seems to be somebody who steps up and runs the ball very well. Corey Clement was the guy who did that last year, and um, now they're going to need to figure out who it is. They got a few guys in Broderick Straw, uh, Chris James in that mix as well. Um, so I think if they can get a consistent rushing game, which that always seems to be the case with Wisconsin, balance that with an improved passing game. and got a pretty stout defensive group. Um, I like Wisconsin to get back there and and uh, and play Penn State again for, for the right to win the Big Ten championship. All right, and who's going to win that game, Penn State or Wisconsin? Penn State, and I don't think they'll fall down by three scores this time. Uh, I think that I think that they do it a little more classically, um, and I think they'll they'll win that game, and um, it, it could ultimately punch their ticket to the playoffs. You know, depending on on how the regular season goes. But it's all you can ask for if you're Penn State, get to the Big Ten championship game, win that game, and um, you know that that'll really make your case. You know, we'll see how muddled things get. It always gets tricky to see who the fourth team is and the fifth team is in this playoff standings. Um, but I, but I think that is how I in my crystal ball. If, if you know, depending on health, uh, as as rosters are constructed now, I do see uh, Penn State over Wisconsin, and, and you know maybe Ohio State's in a situation like Penn State or like uh, like we saw uh, last year. Maybe they're a team that doesn't win the Big Ten championship, uh, but they still make a strong case to, uh, and have their resume to get in the playoffs. So maybe this year we'll see two Big Ten champion teams in the into into the playoffs. I don't know if that'll be the case. It's probably a hard sell. Um, but I think you'll have at least two big, big Ten teams knocking on that door, and, and the selection committee might be hard-pressed not to let them both in. All right, so one final prediction, and I think you kind of foreshadowed it a little bit earlier in the segment. Who is your Big Ten favorite with the best chance to win the Heisman Trophy? And going one step further, do you think they'll get multiple players on the podium in New York City uh, in December? I think there's two teams that could get multiple players on the podium uh, this December. One is Penn State. Obviously, I raved about Saquon Barkley and laid out the the case that's already been created by 
um, everybody around Happy Valley and, and what they're thinking he can accomplish here in 2017. The other is Trace McSorley. I mentioned he, he broke uh, a bunch of school records as a first-year starter last year. I keep hearing about how comfortable he is. He knows this offense like the back of his hand now. Uh, he's an extension of Joe Moore at this point. So, I mean, he is a candidate as well. He'll, he'll run for touchdowns. He'll throw for his fair share. He has a bunch of weapons that he's already comfortable with. Uh, so you can't ask for much more at the quarterback position than Trace McSorley has. And then Ohio State, JT Barrett, I mean, at this point it almost feels like a lifetime achievement award. I mean, he has been right. uh, in the mix for Ohio State for so long, winning these big games, producing numbers, um, you know, and, and everyone's going to point to the fact that he's not a perfect passer. He's not going to translate in the NFL. Well, we'll worry about the NFL next year. What he does in the field here in 2017 uh, is going to be a testament to, to where he is in the offense. They're obviously shaking things up with that staff, with their philosophy. We'll see how it impacts J.T. Barrett. Uh, and then his running back, Mike Weber, I think also has a chance if, if he takes that uh, job by the reins again and, and, and becomes the guy and, and they dedicate a lot of touches to him. Um, he's kind of someone I think could creep up into the Heisman discussion as the season progresses. And if I can give you a sleeper, um, I would probably go with Michigan running back uh, Chris Evans. And I think he's somebody who can do damage um, in the passing game as well. They kind of had a, a, a rotating um, group at running back last year, did the Wolverines. Um, I think Chris Evans has a chance to be the guy um, going into his second college season. So he's a name to watch. Maybe it's not this year, but I think he makes the leap at least into to someone who's maybe on the fringe of the discussion. And then going into his third year in 2018, Chris Evans could be more of a prominent name when you look at these preseason highs and watch lists. All right, it'll be fun to follow. And, and like you said, JT Barrett is one of those guys you feel like a decade's gone by and you, you turn around and he's still in your center. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But um, that's all I got for you, Tyler. Thanks so much for taking the time. Ton of great stuff, great analysis. And uh, it sounded like he could go on forever, and, and I'd be happy to, to get you back on at some point, especially during the season when, when I'm sure there'll be tons to talk about. Oh, we'll have plenty to talk about, that's for sure. <laughs> um, whether, they're, whether they're wins or losses, there's always going to be a lot to talk about with the Big Ten. And, uh, hey, I appreciate the time, Alex, and uh, you do great work, and definitely look forward to, to hearing more of your podcast and hopefully hopping on again. Thanks, man. Likewise. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Rachel, Ryan, and Tyler for joining me and for dropping so much knowledge on the Big Ten East preview episode on the Take Ten podcast. Thanks to Wes White, as always, for producing, and thanks to everyone out there for listening. And don't forget to check out the Big Ten West episode where we have equally excellent coverage of the other half of the conference which, if you're listening to this on Monday, will be coming out on Tuesday. And if you're listening to it at a later date, just look for it on any of the online listening platforms like SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean. And until next time, we will talk to you soon on Take 10.